We are going to start today with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota. And he joins us periodically for Philosophical Currents, a philosophical look at some stories in the news. Jack, thanks for joining us today. Oh, I'm happy to be here as always. So I wanted to talk about socialism today as we are coming out of this pandemic, and I'm using those words uh, a bit loosely here. Some people are calling upon this time as a golden opportunity to look at the way that we do things, saying normal is just what we're used to. It's not right or wrong. So this idea of should school be in person? Should it be online? Should it be hybrid? And a lot of people have been talking about how we deal with access to health care and insurance. And a word that gets thrown around a lot in this conversation without very much understanding of what it means is socialism. And I want to keep the conversation somewhat specific to healthcare, but we should probably start with a pretty broad definition of what does socialism even mean? Socialism is a funny word because the meaning that people use is kind of different than what it actually means. And and also the history of socialism as uh, an enemy of the United States is in flux, right? So for a very long time under the Cold War, the socialists were the Soviet Union, and that's who we were afraid of. And so if you weren't a socialist, uh, if you didn't want to be a socialist, you didn't want to be, you know, the enemy. Now the socialists are the Swedes, right? And so all of a sudden, instead of the Soviet Union being our enemy, Sweden is the enemy. And that's a very, very different kind of enemy, and it's a very, very different meaning of the word. So originally, socialism was just an economic philosophy. It was the idea that the means of production were owned by the government. So the government would socialize the factories or um, the agriculture. And so the idea is that the government would swoop in and take control over the way that we produce goods. And from a centralized location, they would decide – how much uh, to produce, who to, um, how much to pay, uh, you know, how, who to hire. And that has all sorts of economic consequences, some good, some bad. What socialism has ended up becoming, however, is just a code word for either a government that is too big or government benefits that some people think are unjustified. So already the term has shifted a lot in just 100 years. When you say government too big, is this in the context of government has too much control or government is too expensive? Largely the first, um, but the second is a component of it. So when we say government is too big, we're talking about economic influence, but you can't have economic influence without political power. And you can't have political power without, in some sense, affecting other people's political power. So when Ronald Reagan, for example, talked about government being too big, he meant largely uh, economics and giveaways, but he also meant um, 
government getting involved in people's lives. And that's where you hear socialism now. So mm. uh, a government is socialist, some people think, if they want to put some limits on gun ownership. Uh, a government is socialist if they want to make regulations about certain kinds of free speech. Now, again, that's not really socialism, mm. but that's what people mean. And so that leads to the justification uh, for why this is bad, if you think it's bad. And those range from I shouldn't be obligated to give other people money to government is too expensive. And so that's where the two sides tie in. Well, it's interesting, Jack, that you talk about the evolution of our understanding of the word socialist and socialism and talking about how that used to be the Soviet Union, and that was an enemy during the Cold War. I have always thought of, and please correct me, uh, as as the Soviet Union as communist, not socialist. So um, USSR stands for United Soviet Socialist Republic. And it was called socialist because in Marxist theory, there's a period of socialism and a period of of transition before you reach communism. Mm. Technically, under Marx, communism is the abolition of all private property. That gets very complicated, and that's a whole other conversation, which I'm happy to have. Socialism is the time of a strong government that is in the process of moving the economy to a centralized economy and ushering the people into that period, which often involves cultural changes, re-education, um, and, and a whole shift of power. So technically, okay. we've never really had a communist society in the world. Now, that's technically, right? That's mm -hmm. like, that's the lawyer's answer, right? You know, technically, we've never really had a communist power uh, in the world. But by colloquial terms, uh, the Soviet Union and uh, China, for example, are communist countries but then again, the term evolves over time. So I wonder then for people who, who take issue with this term socialism, is it really because it's considered a slippery slope, this transition into straight communism into I don't own anything no matter how hard I work? I don't think so. I think socialism has become a generic term in the United States uh, for – uh, liberal policies that conservatives don't like or left-wing policies that people on the right don't like. You know, the, the left has a tendency to call right-wingers fascists. And this too is problematic because it doesn't really refer to the word, uh, to the true meaning of the word. And so when liberals call conservatives fascists because they're angry or they're being hyperbolic, Conservatives will call liberals socialists for that same reason. And what they end up meaning mm. is some forms of you're stepping on my freedom and you're using the government to step on my freedom. Now, whether that's true or not is a whole other conversation again. But that's what the word socialism means in the United States. So what when we want to talk about socialism in the United States and we want to talk about health care, the question we want to ask is, is giving healthcare to everybody stepping on other people's freedoms is paying for universal health care taking the money out of the pockets of people who are obligated to pay for strangers that's the conversation that people are having now and so how do we address that question 
Well, this is where, interestingly enough, the libertarian shadow influences socialism. Now, hmm. two philosophies can't really be more further apart than libertarian and socialism. Right? Libertarianism holds to a radical individualistic uh, notion of, of freedom and socialism is a collectivist philosophy. Libertarians have convinced folks that all taxation is theft, that every kind of um, government contribution that isn't voluntary is a violation of property rights. And so in order to have a socialist society, you have to increase taxes. In order to have a socialist society, you have to fund the government. You have to fund health care. And you have to get that from several different places, but the main place is taxation. So if the socialists want to increase taxes, the libertarians are going to come in and say, by increasing taxes, you're increasing theft. You're stealing money that I earned myself. Recall uh, two elections ago when the, the Republican slogan was, I built this, right? When they were talking about mm -hmm. small businesses and they were saying, yeah. I built this, I bought this. That was actually a form of this debate because what the Democrats were saying was, you know, small businesses exist with assistance from the government, with regulations, with tax, uh, with with tax incentives. You know, someone has to build the roads and the and and put in the streetlights that get to the small businesses. And the Republicans were saying none of that matters. I built the business through my own the the work of my own two hands, and so therefore I am the only one who gets credit. That is a variation on this libertarian versus socialism debate, and basically it asks the question, what responsibility do you have to contribute to the well-being of the community? And that's where the conflict comes in. That's an incredibly difficult line to draw. And I think that this phrase, draw a line in the sand, is, is almost invented for this scenario because, yeah, starting your own business is hard and it takes – everything that you have and it's in a lot of ways easier to just show up at work and get paid every two weeks and not have to deal with all of these things but of course I didn't invent the internet and I couldn't get to a certain job site without a road so drawing this line in, in the sand of is it possible to have something like what I'll call socialist infrastructure, but still the capitalist economy. You have the roads that are paid for by the government via your taxes, but then you get to keep more of what you earned. Well, let me answer that and then let me backtrack. Okay. So the answer is Yes, it is. And ironically, given the way I started the discussion, it's called Sweden. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, Sweden is a lot more capitalist than, than, than people give it credit for. We'll get to that in a second. This idea of infrastructure and this idea of working hard to start a small business, those things are both very, very important. Uh, last weekend, I did a, a, a bike race, uh, a gravel race out in Lawton, North Dakota. It was very, very cool. Um, and the, the cyclists and I raced through the farmland on these gravel roads and on these dirt roads. And it was horrendously difficult. It was 30 mile an hour winds. And, and I thought it was going to take me five hours and 15 minutes. And it took me six hours and 45 minutes, right? 
two things were happening simultaneously. First, I was using roads that someone had built beforehand, and I was in a race that someone had organized and planned and did all of those things. And at the same time, I was working incredibly hard. It was the hardest bike ride probably of my entire life. I burned 4,100 calories. You wow. know? It was just, it was insane. And I had at one point I was on the side of the road for 10 minutes sitting, having an existential crisis because I didn't (laughs) know I could finish. Right. Mm. Both of those things can be true at the same time. I can be using an infrastructure that someone else created and I could still be working incredibly focused and, and, and dedicated with my own energy and recognize that in the end, it is I who have to get over the finish line. And so the problem with the debate that the Republicans and Democrats had in that election that I mentioned earlier was that it suggested that the ideas were mutually exclusive, that either you have the infrastructure or you have individual hard work when actually everything is the same, right? Everything takes both. So now let's go to Sweden again. Now, Sweden certainly has higher taxes than the United States, but Sweden also has 100% universal health care that everyone pretty much uh, doesn't pay a cent for. They've got very long vacations. They've got safe streets. They've got incredible infrastructure in, in a whole host of other ways. But Sweden is also capitalist in the sense that you go to the supermarket and there are 30 different kinds of cereal to choose from. Um you can choose your cell phone provider. You uh, get to choose your own profession. No one is telling you you have to do this or you have to do that. There is upward mobility uh, in in the society, so you can be in the lower income uh, and not be. Uh, and then maybe your kids will be in the higher income. The question where Sweden and America disagree fundamentally, and that leads to all of the other discussions, is how far should the government let its citizens fall? How much are the citizens permitted to lose? In the United States, I could be walking uh, down the street and I could trip and fall through no fault of my own, lose my leg, and then lose my, then then go bankrupt from the the hospital bills and lose my job, right? I mean, a lot would have to happen, but it could happen. And the programs to help me then are minimalist and often inadequate. In Sweden, that won't happen. In Sweden, you don't go bankrupt for for the medical bills. And in Sweden, there's all sorts of protections to help people keep their jobs. The question that socialists have ultimately asked over and over again is, is there a point where it is unjust and immoral to let people fall below? Americans think not, or Americans think that point is really, really, really low, and that point is different depending on where you live, on who you are, on uh, who your governor is, on who your legislature is. It varies radically. Sweden says no. There's this thing called human dignity. There's these things called uh, necessities of life, and the government's job is to make sure that no matter what happens – whether it's your own mistake or someone else's or just an accident of life, no matter what happens, you are protected from going below that level. And the debate about socialism, just like the debate about healthcare specifically, is really about that. Is there a bottom level that we are morally obligated to say, 
we don't care what happened and we don't care whose fault it was. We will not allow you to sink below that level. Hmm. That's where the controversy rests. To put a finer point on that, could a person ask the question a little differently of maybe we can agree that the U.S. and Sweden, neither one wants this person to fall to this level of abject poverty because of something that didn't happen or that, that they didn't cause, for example. But more so the question is who pays for it and why. Maybe in Sweden the idea is, okay, the government can provide for its citizens because that's just part of what the government should do. But maybe in the U.S. or or other places, it's not really about it's the government's job to make sure they don't fall that low. It's an individual's job to help collectively with their own wealth or maybe even something like – Isn't that the role of the church? So there is a debate as to whether it's a private responsibility to provide charity, right? And and in the United States, right, that that is part of what's going on. There's a sense that this is more private than public responsibility. But look, you now, I am sure, like me, have been – to a dozen of these church fundraisers where someone has cancer mm-hmm. and they have these medical bills and friends and community members come and bid on items or buy pieces of pie and they, and, and mm-hmm. they, they mm-hmm. gain, you know, they, they, they raise money. The best of those things will raise $10,000, right? I mean, you know, probably they raise $2,000 or $4,000 or in a smaller town, they'll raise right? That's 10 minutes in a hospital, right? I mean, so the idea that the private sector can replace the government is, is, is nonsense. And the fact that private insurance can replace the government is a more compelling uh, response. But as we know, Private insurance companies are constantly looking for reasons and ways not to pay or to have lower deductibles and higher and higher things like that. Now, philosophically, at the core of this is an idea that has has its origins in 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 the 17th and 18th century, and that is that there are these two groups of poor: the deserving poor hmm. and the undeserving poor. Right. The deserving poor are those who are working hard to get out of poverty and they deserve assistance. The undeserving poor are those who are not working or who are um, unemployed because they're alcoholics or unemployed because, I don't know, God disfavored them, right? There's a thousand different reasons. And they, since they're undeserving, don't get financial assistance from the community. They don't get financial assistance from the government. A socialist perspective – rejects that idea, rejects the idea that, that that dessert has anything to do with poor. Someone doesn't deserve to get cancer. Someone doesn't deserve to get hit by a, a drunk driver. That term doesn't apply from a socialist perspective. And so when you look at it at its moral core, you have to ask yourself, are you willing to distinguish between those who need and deserve help and those who need who don't deserve help. I find that distinction a little problematic in part because people are going to disagree radically about what moral system you use for dessert, right? There there are plenty of people in this country who think the moment you have an abortion, you don't deserve any help at all. You're a murderer, period. 
But 80% of the country think, no, that there's some room for abortion. So who do you listen to, the 20% or the 80%? Well, if it's a private discussion, then it depends on who your neighbor is. It depends on, on, on who your religious organization is. If it's a public discussion, then the majority has more power. It's really important to remember that when we talk about the government, we are talking about people. We're talking about representation. We're talking about voters. We're talking about lobbyists. And even in a socialist country like Sweden, it's a democracy. It's a representative democracy. There is no Western European socialist uh, country that is not a democracy as well and that doesn't have – frankly, <laughs> better run elections than we have had the last couple times. So this is another one of the sort of philosophical nuances that socialism is an economic philosophy. It's not a political philosophy. Mm. And so you can have a fascist socialism uh, like the Nazi party. Nazi stands for national socialists, right? That's what the word comes from, national socialismus. Um, that's where the word Nazi comes from. You can have a fascist socialist. You can have a democratic socialist. You can have something that is maybe uh, a little stronger state, but not quite a democracy, you know, and anywhere on the spectrum. So socialism can match with a whole bunch of different things because it's ultimately an economic philosophy. And there is a small group that has has weaved in and out of out of popularity for the last 50 years called the Democratic Socialists of America and um and that you know they endorse Bernie Sanders for example right so you have to be aware of the limitations of the term again as Americans tend to use socialism they mean it more as a political philosophy rather than an economic philosophy. Well, and I wonder how much of it just comes down to this national identity that Americans have of rugged individualism versus we got here, you know, based on other things. <laughs> I th No, I think that's absolutely right. I think that that's a really, really astute comment that, that one of the centerpieces of the American culture is this idea that we got to the West on our own, that we built these cities on our own. Mm -hmm. But of course, we also know that's not true, right? We imported Chinese slaves basically to build our railroads, Right. And take us out west. Uh, we had the chattel slavery, uh, the descendants of Africans to build many of our cities. Do you know that it, it, in, in, in New York City um, around uh, before the Civil War, there were gangs of people who would walk the streets at night and mm. kidnap yeah. black New Yorkers and take them down south. Right. So it wasn't just exclusively the south. Right. Mm -hmm. The United States was built on these things. So. Rugged individualism is an ideal and rugged individualism is, is an image of the cowboy, of, of John Wayne, of all these other things. But, you know, John Wayne doesn't get the girl at the end. He rides off into the sunset by himself because to be a rugged individualist means to not love, to not have a family, to not care for your kid. That's what individualism in extremists is and that's why at the end of the at the end of the cowboy movie the boy is screaming shane shane come back a very old reference but nevertheless shane shane come back because the cowboy would rather be on his own he and his horse in the wilderness then tied down to a family. The moment you're tied down to a family, the definition of individualism changed. In fact, Adam Ferguson, a, a philosopher of the 18th century, has a wonderful footnote in one of his books that, that I cite often, which is, 
we have to think of a different word other than selfish to describe the care a mother has for her child, right? There are lots of people who say, oh, you're only doing this for your kid because you want your kid to succeed. That's your family. You're selfish. Well, that's not selfish. That's something else. Just like wanting your community to thrive isn't selfish. It's something else. All of these words fall apart once you recognize that human beings are inherently dependent on one another and inherently cooperative human beings. And that, again, is the libertarian legacy because libertarians don't like to talk about cooperation. They think we are individuals who can associate or not associate with other people voluntarily. But a socialist says, no, we are inherently inter integrated and we need one another to do everything, including, as a philosopher Alistair McIntyre points out, every single person is dependent on someone else at some point, even if they're a baby or they're 90 years old. Another fascinating discussion with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a philosophy professor at UND. Jack, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. This was such a complex thing. <laughs> I, I, I really feel like we just touched the surface. Yeah, barely. <laughs> <laughs>